Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the From Starving to Savvy podcast for independent artists. Here, we share stories from artists, arts administrators, and other professionals working at the intersection of art and technology. Together, we work to interrogate the landscape of the arts industry and attempt to inject a refreshed sense of optimism to unravel the narrative of the starving artist. From Starving to Savvy is funded and produced by Last Draft Incorporated, a story company that specializes in online branding and expression for artists, entrepreneurs, and professionals with personality. I'm your host, Renee Coughlin, and you're listening to From Starving to Savvy. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of From Starving to Savvy. Today's guest is a person who I could listen to for hours on end. He is a multidisciplinary artist who just can't stop creating, and the world is better for it. Chris Carr is his name, and he is an anti-corporate, grassroots community organizer who is unstoppable when it comes to creating meaningful and honest artistic work and events that connect humans in so many ways. Chris has been organizing indie events for over 10 years. He has one of the most prolific art practices I think I've ever seen and is a great teacher when it comes to getting things done on a budget, being resilient, self-sufficient, and staying true and honest about who you are as a human being. You can learn more about all of the amazing work that Chris is involved in by following him on social media at BKWildlife. But for now, we have this great opportunity to hear directly from him. So, Chris, welcome. So excited to have you here. Yeah, thank you. I, I'd like to just start off by saying I appreciate you bringing me on. I'm excited to discuss some of these topics and, and creative works. I am a hyper creative. I make stuff all the time, and I have no idea how to get it to all the people that might appreciate it. So I'm glad I get to share some of this info. It with is you. absolutely our pleasure. Thank you again for taking the time to be here. So let's jump right in. I'd love for you to share just a little bit about your motivation behind why you do what you do and how you're able to do so much. Mm. Wow, that, that's difficult. I'm not sure. One of the things that I explore in art is why we make art. My, my root, I think, or, or the centerpiece of my creative products are existential crisis and not the philosophical kind of category or genre of existentialism. But definitionally, we exist, we're alive. To do what, why, how, where are we? How do we get here? Where are we going in the future? Who is the we? And how do we decipher these things? How do we explore these things? How do we investigate some of these questions? And what do we do with our conclusions? What do we do with our assumptions? What do we do with our theories and and our hypotheses that come from this type of questioning? So when I think of purpose or I think of why I share part of it is like a priori like I have to like these thoughts come into my mind or, or I have these feelings or I have these emotional experiences and as humans we're connective we we are communal animals and for some reason I like don't feel right if I don't share these feelings I don't feel right if I don't reflect the experiences of the other people that I've met I don't feel right if I don't exchange information with people and engage in a constant process of lifelong learning. Um, and the way I learn is through discussion a lot of the time and through action and doing and being with people. 
So the, the art becomes a starting point or kind of the um, springboard to allow for other engagements, discussions, learning experiences, activities. And I feel like I'm, I'm constantly trying to find a way to make it more and more connective. When I was younger, part of my art expression was purely catharsis. It was like, I need to get this stuff out. I need to say these things. I need to talk to people about them or it's going to drive me crazy. At a certain point, I started finding resonance and, and people who were like, yo, that thing you said really affected me. And I had people like coming up to me like crying at different times about like stuff that I was writing about or, or issues that I brought up, whether it was, you know, some of my friends ODing or uh, kind of suicidal ideation and some of the mental health challenges that people in the arts community go through or whether it was certain family issues and, and feelings of distance or disappointment or failure, whatever it, it had been, it was like an honest, authentic expression for me and it actually connected with somebody else. And for the most part, when I first started making art, I wasn't really aware of how connective it could be. I knew I, knew I listened to artists and I watched artists and I, I was affected, but I felt like in the way that I made art, it was weird, it was odd, it was like muddled and too confusing for other people to really attach to. And it really, I didn't need them to validate it. I didn't need people to attach to it. It was like, here's what I gotta say, I say it. Um, once I started finding that connectivity, I wanted to increase the occurrence of that. And I wanted to figure out, well, what is my specific human experience and go deep into that. But how does that relate on a larger level, um, to other people around the world? And how does that relate to folks I've never met or people that are actually from such different backgrounds, but we have this common experience. And, uh, so I think in my photography and the book and, the music and the events I curate, I started taking a, a deep interest in what matters to people, what's important to people, what things are at the base of their decision-making or their moral systems or their ideological paradigms. Um, how do we all end up looking at the world? And like, why are we missing each other's perspectives? Why do we attach and feel alignment with other people's perspectives? And so I think, Part of what moves me is like chasing that elusive figment of my imagination, which is like, people understand. I feel understood. I understand people. Um, because that's, that's actually really difficult to understand and to feel understood. And, and I think art is a great conduit for establishing that, that feeling. Mm -hmm. And I feel like one of the ways you do that so well is through being so open and honest with people. Um, in a recent social media post about the release of your new book called Thoughts of an Angry Black Man, you share that it is a self-published, self-edited book that doesn't have some big corporate engine behind it. And it's an honest and real release of this particular part of your story that comes with typos, but it's real. And I believe that when artists like you share this kind of work outwardly, it invites others to do the same. And it inherently seems to work towards defying this sense of perfection that people seem to kill themselves trying to achieve, but never actually get to a place where they share it with anyone outside of themselves. And 
you share so beautifully about the power that art has to connect people. And I think the best way to form meaningful connection is through that honesty that you, you seem to do so effortlessly. And what was it like to write this story and share it with people? I mean, this has been such a leap for me. And it, and it came out of being pushed to the wall. I mean, I got diagnosed with melanoma last year and I got my pinky toe amputated. I got lymph nodes removed. Um, three months earlier, my partner got diagnosed with appendicitis cancer. So like mortality was something and is something constantly on my mind um, in a way that it hadn't been prior. I've always been self-aware that like one of the correlations with living is you don't live forever. And so death and the end of life has been something that I'm keenly aware of, but I also was in a space of expectation of, well, as long as I stay away from people that engage in certain things, I won't get caught up in certain things out in the world. I, I didn't join the military, so I won't die like that. I'm not a cop. I'm not, I stay safe in a certain way to try to stay alive. And I try to live in a certain way that I don't do any drugs that you can die from. You know, I don't play in traffic. You know, I, I try to do things that, to keep myself safe while being non-traditionalist um, and getting diagnosed with cancer where it's like, doesn't matter what you do, your body might take you out is, is a life changing experience. And uh, to watch my partner go through it and she's, you know, recovering well now and has had clear scans since uh, her surgery. And I've, I've been recovering well. I'm on immunotherapy, but it, anything I wanted to do, I'm going to do it. And, and I don't mean like, the trivial, I mean, any of the things that I really, really, really wanted to do, any of the things that I sat around thinking like, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write a book for years. And I started putting the book together and then I got into the editing. And I was like, I'm never going to edit this. This takes too long. It's never going to be perfect. I don't like it anymore. Ah, uh, this and that. And then, uh, so I, so I started this writing process like maybe two years ago. And so then last year when I got diagnosed, one of the first things that happened after I had surgery and I was recovering out of stuff in the house is I, I opened up the file and I started working on the book again started editing and I was staying up till six, seven in the morning and just working on the book. And um, then I hit a wall again and was like, I'm never going to finish it. And I stopped and, and, and let it go. And maybe a month ago or, or I don't know how long I was in the park and I got hit with that sense of mortality again. And I started thinking about like, I got scans coming up. Like, yeah, it was right around my, my one year CAT CT scans and everything were about to come up. And I started freaking out and I was like, if I were to die in the next six months, most of the creative work I've ever made is stuck in my computer. I have hundreds of songs in my computer. I have hundreds of pages that I've written in my computer. I have tens of thousands of photos in my computer. I have video work. I have so many ideas that are stuck in a, a machine that can stop working. A, so the machine can die or I could die before any of it comes out. Put it out. And so literally, I, I went in that night and pulled up the file again, went on Lulu.com, and I was like, I'm going to publish this book. And it took me about two days to figure out the formatting or to you know, get the things right that I was comfortable with. I pressed 50 books. I told people there were going to be typos in it, but I signed every you know, copy and personalized a note for everybody, and it sold out within five days. And so during that time period, we did another edit. Uh, my partner, Melissa, helped me edit, and we did another run, and I'm sure there mistakes in this run and then we'll go through that and fix it and hopefully by the third fourth or fifth run it'll be perfect but uh i i hit a thing of like just put it out like like it's never gonna be perfect and i'm never gonna be satisfied and so if i keep waiting for what until until i can't you know or until it doesn't match anymore or i don't emotionally feel 
um, aligned with the work. And so I think like, I would tell anybody, make things and put them into the world. And sure, be aware of time and effort. And if you put it five years into something, to then try to do what you can to get it out in the best way possible. And to not just like not take the distribution uh, lightly or to, or to in a way be like, well, it doesn't matter how it all looks. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is don't wait forever. What, what I'm saying is at a certain point, the creative work is going to live outside of you anyway. And you won't be able to control how people accept it, how they feel about it, what they think about it. And at a certain point, you got to get it out so you can do something else and, and get that rock off your shoulders that you keep pushing up that hill never going anywhere after a certain point let it go and and release it into the world um and it's been great putting the book out it's scary you know thoughts of an angry black man like very emotionally um direct and it came out of like my lyrics i like to cloud things like i, I use a lot of metaphor simile when i write raps and um i enjoy it being almost a puzzle with this work i wanted to do the opposite where as soon as you read it you get what i'm talking about and you don't have to have gone to grad school. I did go to grad school. Uh, and so there are some things in it that are about postmodernism or about, uh, you know, post-Marxist theories on ownership or uh, capital or the value of labor and the alienation and estrangement that comes along with our capitalist society. But I'm not using the vocabulary or the jargon of economists or social scientists I'm using regular everyday, here's how a person thinks about these issues and how we view our value and our, and our position in a society where objects retain more value than people. And when people are part of a colonial process that is dehumanizing, that is objectifying, and how that affects the men, women, trans folks that have to manage all that. Um, and after a while, it's just like, I just put it out. I was doing, I was doing songs and like performances and I wanted to use some of these lyrics and it was like too much for like a rap show. Like people are like, yo, I came here to see like fun and you're like yelling about capitalism or, or how like 85% of white folks are probably white supremacists, but you don't mean Nazi white supremacists. You mean just regular American culture is ethnocentric and like white supremacist. I don't want to, I ain't come here for all that. So I wanted to put it in a, in a container where it's like, thoughts of angry black man, you know what you're getting. You didn't think you were coming for like, oh, I'm going to dance and listen to some rap music. It's you're going to get this book. You're going to read and think about it. And, and what black man in their right mind wouldn't be angry about some of these issues going on? What black woman, what black trans folks, what, how are we supposed to be okay with contemporary society and, and things happening? And so it's for, I think, other black folks that may feel like, they are being told how to manage colonialism or they're being told how they should respond to oppression. And this is kind of saying, here's my response to it. And I have no problem being angry about certain things. And it makes sense if you are angry and if people tell you you shouldn't be, my response is they must not know what they're talking about. And if you're a white person, this is also then insight to where if you're sitting there, you're not black and you're like, why are black people so angry? What are they tripping about in this country? It's America. Everyone has everything that they need. Well, read, read the book and, and you'll get some insight into the imbalance and the disparity and social stratification, as well as hope, as well as uh, 
a belief that as humans, we all can connect and that race is a false construction. That's when, one of the pieces in it. I'm like, where do white people come from? And no one would be able to answer that question. You, you'll get like, well, human diaspora all out of Africa and then this happened and then due to vitamin D deficiency or dietary thing, you know, da, 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 white people lost pigment and got blonde hair. No one knows actually. The Inuits went north and, and they still got dark hair. They're still dark skin. They've been living in the Arctic Circle how long? You know, uh, there are people lighter than me in Africa that never mixed with white folks. How they, what, what happened? We don't know. And what no one ever says is, well, what do you mean by white people? But they, what they, when they answer, when they're like, where do white people come from? They're like, well, do you mean like when they left Africa? Do you mean the term white person out of European descent? No one ever says like, wait, race is fake. There's no genetic difference between you or I based on like race. There's no genetic basis for race. We have more genetic variants based on blood type than the fact that I'm of quote unquote African descent and you're of European descent. And so I, I try to also remind people that like, don't get caught up in the hype. Don't believe the hype, you know, like we're all human. We all can relate to each other. We all have the ability to be empathetic and compassionate and to, to see ourselves in each other and see each other in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And where do you see the art that you make landing in all of that among colonialism and capitalism and a world that prioritizes things over people? Do you ever feel a sense of protectiveness over the art that you make to prevent it from becoming another commodity or becoming so marketized? Not a fear in the sense of, I fully believe what I'm saying. I fully am bound to it and am able to stand by it. I think something that became very clear to me and, and something that like I couldn't run from when I first started rapping is when you get off stage, people will, will come up to you and talk to you about what you say. It's not like on TV, you'd assume, well, oh, people rap and then they go to their green room or they like rap and disappear. Well, yeah, I don't have a manager, agent or security or anything like that to keep me partitioned from people. So if I'm on stage and I rap and I say something negative about women, when I get off stage, one of my female friends is going to be like, really? Like, I know you, you don't really, you don't talk like that normally. You don't speak like that. You don't, I don't think you believe those things you just said. Why are you doing that? And I don't have the ability to have that conversation and not feel bad about myself. Like, like if I were to get off stage and someone were to be like, yo, dog, what you said is hella offensive for these reasons, I would be like, well, I'm not here to oppress people. You know, I'm not, I, the, the last thing I want to do with my art and my music is make people who are already in marginalized groups even more self-conscious, even more questioning of their placement. If anything, part of what I love about my art is like we all deserve a place at the table and we all are beautiful in our own idiosyncrasies and in, in the way that we manifest. Um, and so I've been writing now for 15, 20 years. I'm pretty comfortable that whatever I make, put it out. If people don't like it, we talk about it. You know, if someone's like, oh, you're being racist because you say majority of this country is white supremacy. No, I'm not. And we can talk about the definition of racism. We can talk about power and hegemony and the, the development of these terms, we can talk about why I ended up with this perspective and we can talk about why it's difficult for you or why it might hurt your feelings, but I don't feel bad about it. And I think because I'm so distanced from any type of corporate involvement, I don't worry about things being commandeered or co-opted. No, there's no one to co-opt it. There's no one to take advantage of it. There's no one to use my message for their purpose. I'm not attached to anything. It's just me and the homies. It's just me and the people I work with and the people that support it. And so like, I'm a, I am protective, 
in that I've seen how corporations mess up a message, which is why I don't send it to them. Like I'm not releasing stuff and then going at every publisher, like, can you please put my book out? You know, I, I don't release music and then say, oh, let me send it to all these labels and get feedback. I don't, there's no feedback. Ain't nobody can tell me anything. They, did they rap longer than me? Probably not. I mean, how many times I sit in the office with someone uh, and talk about music or hip hop and realize they've never done it a day in their life, but they're telling me what I should do because they know how to market it, they know how to sell it. That's not really what I'm here to do. Like we are, we, I think as artists, one of my friends, Tongo, um, he, he said that, that art is very interesting when you think of it in a Marxist uh, perspective in terms of owning the means of production, that there are very few things that require no material, just your thoughts. And that when we bring our thoughts into reality and being, we manifest a work process that's very unique to artists because I don't need any other item. I don't, I don't need gold or copper or computer chip or anything. All I need is inspiration in my mind and my spoken words. And I own my means of production. No one can stop me. And that's very powerful. There, there's something in that. And, and so I want to utilize that to the maximum capability and the maximum potential of like, we're told to minimize ourselves or to, to dull our light or to, um, that we have problems. So let's buy products to fix, fix our problems. You know, like, oh, you're getting old, your face is wrinkled, here's some Botox. I'm here to be like, don't put poison in your face, you know? And, and to say we're supposed to get old and wrinkly, and that's amazing, because when you end up, you know, being told you got cancer, you start worrying about if you're gonna live to your old and wrinkly, you then want to be old and wrinkly. You stop worrying about some of that extra shit. And, and you realize the, the, the human experience is beautiful in its various facets, then I have to just speak that to power. And, and if people aren't ready for it, okay. If people don't like it, okay. But there's nothing for me to be afraid of other than it being misrepresented or tainted. And as long as I don't give it to someone else, they can't misrepresent it. It's not like I'm not, I don't have anyone corporate looking over my shoulder when I put the book out. There was no one to be like, oh, this piece about uh, Black Nihilism, or oh, this piece about Super Negro. We don't know about that. It's like, can't nobody tell me anything. You're reminding me a lot of thomas king's the truth about stories and how those of us who hear the stories we then have a responsibility to them and how we move with them and how they carry on in our lives gris how much of this stuff or the substance that you're kind of describing how much of that trickles into the education programs that you're running in schools yeah i mean i think it it stems from the same root of what did I have growing up that I would like to perpetuate or continue for the next generation? And what didn't I have? And how can I provide that? So when I think of music, hip hop was really dope because there's this place where young black people could express themselves in all of our various capacities. And when you freestyle with people, you might be with 15, 20 people you never met before. You might talk about really personal uh, experiences. And it's something that is emotional and kind of unique. Like as a young black man, you aren't always encouraged to be emotionally expressive. So hip hop provided that. But also uh, I ran into a thing of the hip hop circles I was in were a bit homogenous and there weren't a lot of people that weren't men, or there weren't a whole lot of people that weren't uh, heteronormative or you didn't have a mix of the folk music and the metal and burlesque at the hip hop shows. It was like hip hop's here and then the other stuff's over there. So when I thought of music, it was like, nah, I, we need everyone at the table. You know, we need all the perspectives 
who contribute, who care, and who are attached to hip hop, to feel comfortable. And if you play blues, come through and rock out, and we'll rap while you play blues. Or if you play metal, I'll figure out a way to rap your metal band. You know, like I, I really enjoy the, these worlds coming together. So when we did events, we try to bring together burlesque and hip hop and fire spinning and poetry and folk music and you know figure out how to make that work in literature. And so with the educational stuff, I remember being a young person and and being fascinated with philosophical issues and questions about the nature of being and life and uh, you know getting into to Hegel and Schopenhauer and uh, Heidegger and um, these philosophies of phenomenology and experience and how do we know anything and Nietzsche and all this other stuff and um, I also remember though not seeing people that look like me teach me I also remember it being centered around colonial history. And so with our educational programs, we've been doing a lot to introduce this concept of existential crisis as the basis, but also with a, a deconstruction of colonial history and a way of looking at what we're learning in school as interdisciplinary and not partitioned into, well, you need math so you can count or you need literature so you can read, but more an idea of how do we come to know the world? What are the means by which we understand epistemology, axiology, metaphysics, things of that nature? And math and science are tools for certain types of access. And, and if you want to understand the nature of the world in certain ways, literature provides certain things, math provides certain things, history provides certain things. But let's deconstruct this notion of it being European-centered. Let's actually do an understanding of history when we say, well, how do we get to America? We don't start with Leif Erikson. We don't start with Christopher Columbus. We start with understanding, well, where do humans come from in the first place? And then we really look at then the diaspora and the spread and, and this expansion of humanity. And we start looking at perspective of, well, from the indigenous folks, they were already in America. So we don't talk about Columbus first as the progenitor. We talk about the indigenous folks and how were they affected by the European expansion and incursion and this age of quote unquote exploration. And instead of celebrating Cortez and Hernandez and these people that murdered who knows how many people, we look at the actual historical effect and ramifications of that colonial enterprise and how it changed life for people that had been living in the area for who knows how long. And from there, continue to build on that. And look at, well, how come there aren't more stories by women in our history books? How come there aren't more experiences when we're reading literature of, of Haitian, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Jamaican, uh, Guatemalan, Nicaraguan writers? when we're learning about American literature, because those are part of the Americas. Um, and I think I, I've always felt like we have to be the change. And, and if we've got a problem with something, it is helpful to identify the problem and to address how that problem affects people. But are we willing to then provide a solution? Are we willing to try to provide a solution? Are we willing to experiment? And so I think in my artwork and education, like when I was working with high school kids, they are, so excited about learning about the world. So why give them rote memory stuff? Like, like the human brain and mind, uh, I, I know that they're different, but for this conversation, we'll say brain and mind are, are connected or like have some type of, of unification. The, the, the brain is a analogy-based problem-solving computational device. And so like our brains are made to say, here's a new experience, I don't understand it, let's use history or the past or imagination to figure out a solution and work the problem until we solve it. And so we're not made to do the same thing over and over and over again. We're not made to remember just dates and times and facts and figures. 
we're made to deal with these huge problems of how do we feed 350 million people without polluting the oceans afterwards? How do we deal with homelessness and, and the distribution of resources? How do we manage the fact that, in my mind, overpopulation is a farce? There's so much room on this planet. What's not a farce is who owns the means of production and why are they then misallocating funds, resources, and concentrating wealth in the hands of 1% of people that 99% of people have to work for? And is that healthy? Is that, have, does that have any sustainability? What, what are the outcomes of that? And so with the education stuff, it's you're not doing a project or a paper because you just have to do a paper. It makes you smarter. It's more of the idea of in your community, there are problems that you want to solve. When you're a 15-year-old, you walk around being like, look at how dumb the adults are. Why'd they make the world like this? And so we encourage, like, go with that. What are the problems then that you want to solve? What are the things that you notice in the world around you that you'd like to experiment and, and work with and try to push forward and, and develop progress. Um, and so with our interdisciplinary program at the high school uh, we did, it's, it's heavily rooted in then understanding identity and, and the identity of the individual within a social context and that community within a larger context of a nation state than within a larger context of the world of nation states. Um, and, and to keep in mind that like, there isn't a, hopefully we don't approach with the binary, but that it's not, either you or the world, but like we are part of the world. Humans are part of nature. And yes, we augment the world around us in a way that no other animal has, but it's not either or. It's, it's how do we exist with nature? How, how do we contribute? How does nature affect us? How do we understand how our environment affects our behavior? Our, befa- our behavior affects how then other people feel, you know? And, and, and to, to keep questioning, it's, it's my education stuff is really rooted in the Platonic, Socratic and, and kind of Pythagorean North African idea of each question reveals another phenomenon to be questioned. We're not going for like universal complete answer. It's like, keep going. Each investigation opens up the next thing to explore. Yes. And I love so much to think about putting that idea in conversation with determining our own identity and understanding of our own identity that some parts of us stay constant while others change and grow and evolve as we encounter new things and new experiences. So you mentioned way back at the beginning of our conversation that some of your art stays around for so long that it's no longer reflective of who you are by the time it actually comes time to share it with others. And as a songwriter, I totally empathize with that feeling of looking back at work that I've created and think wow, who wrote that? That's not really me at all. And for you as a multidisciplinary artist who's so incredibly prolific and sharing so much work so often, how frequently do you look back at something that you've created that just doesn't ring true to who you are anymore? Uh, Especially with music, content-wise, yes. I may not necessarily dig the delivery or the style or how I wrote the beat or was it perfect technically, but in terms of content, um, I drove up from DC with my partner and I found an old book of, of CDs from my house and my mom's house. And I had my old CD. And so I had almost all my, my songs, like over 15 years or however long of music. And we listened to it. It was a four or five hour drive. So I just listened as much as I could. And there were maybe two or three songs where I was like, ooh, I wouldn't, and eh, that's not really. But out of who knows how many songs. So um, again, some of the, the 
sound quality, you know, or some of the like, why why did I punch in there or why did I do this or that? Or like, I'm still very self-critical. But in terms of the actual content, it excited me that I could hear things that I made 12 years ago. And even though I'm a different person per se, or even though I wouldn't say some of those things now, the truth of it and the authenticity and the be able to remember who I was then was very important. And like there's songs I've had about like heartbreak or breakup and it doesn't resonate anymore. Like I'm not sad about the girl from nine years ago. Uh, so I don't necessarily want to perform that song all the time or act like that's where I am now. But when I hear the song, I'm like, whoa, bro. Like I remember that. That was like a strong, that was a tough summer. You know, like I, that was, wow, okay. And, and some of these old songs or verses or poems or, or writings really take me back to the emotional experience of the time. And, and that's what I want. I want it to be almost like a, a time ship or, or some type of uh, capsule of, of emotional experience and expression. And, um, and that it, it hopefully was just transparently like honest and authentic to what I was thinking at the time. Even if I was wrong, even if I said things that I now disagree with, even if I said things that don't match my ideological perspective now, so that, was it honest to how I was then? Was it the best I could do to portray and convey my thoughts, feelings, emotions, and experiences? And, and I'm really proud of, of the work that I've made. Uh, I just need to get it out to more people. <laughs> and so what about now in these kind of strange, unpredictable global pandemic days? Has COVID had an effect on how you go about making and releasing art? Yeah, it definitely affected how I make art. I, I normally perform a lot. I run an art space in Brooklyn, and we were doing shows there four or five nights out of the week. Uh, if I wasn't doing a show in the art space, then I was using other people's spaces or venues or houses and doing shows. So I'm used to performing a, a good bit, which also means I, I don't necessarily release music online frequently because I'm performing so much. I don't necessarily like need to. And I don't get the concept of releasing stuff on a streaming platform. You get paid 0.004 cents a stream. They make all the money. It's not like it leads to more people coming to the show. It's kind of makes no sense to me. And you pay to put it out. So it's like, why am I doing that? Um, and so I'm, I'm releasing more stuff now since I can't perform. And I've been in the studio a bit more recording since I can't perform and I'm not able to do as many shows. I don't know how it works for other people, but I've, I've never had writer's block. I've never hit a point where I didn't want to make stuff. I may not always want to rap, like performing, and then I'll record. I may not always want to record, I perform. I may not want to do either, I write. I may not want to write, I make videos. I may not want to make a video, we do photo shoots. You know, we throw a show. There's always something that is driving me and to make stuff. And so even during the pandemic, it's like, fine, we can't do shows, I can't gather, I can't perform, I was supposed to tour, we were supposed to go to South by Southwest, we had booked, you know, we had a house rented down there for the week and I went to the website, artery.is. We were gonna be, I had booked over 40 artists to perform during that week. All that got canceled. Well, so now we're doing the Free World Fest where we're doing a digital uh, festival, a month long of streaming. And some of those artists that I was supposed to see in real life in Texas are streaming. And they're using technology in a way they haven't before to get their hyper-local music around the world globally through our festival. Um, and so it, it's, you know, necessity is the mother of all inventions. And so we, we've had to adapt. We've had to come up with ways to stay busy and active and productive and uh, creatively energized. But it's, it's something that happens outside of my control. Like I, I think art and, and the creative expression experience 
which overlaps into education, is what I'm made to do. Like it's taken me 35, 40 years to figure it out, but I'm, I'm not made to be an accountant. I'm not made to worry about market analysis and trends and finance reports and, um, you know, legal stipulations like I'm, I'm supposed to do what i'm doing chris it certainly appears that way and i know i've gotten so much from paying attention to your work and hearing your stories and i'm really looking forward to reading your book and continuing my own learning and i know you're a very busy guy so i really do sincerely appreciate your time and energy towards contributing to the show today and i really hope that we will meet again <laughs> yeah it's all good i mean before i go I, I would encourage people, um, and this is something I tell myself, so this isn't like, let me give you advice, young people. This is like what I tell myself constantly, um, is break the mold and do not settle for the status quo. When I when I started Brooklyn Wildlife and I started doing events in New York and I started the type of rap I've been doing recently, people were like, you can't do it. You can't throw a summer festival without sponsors. Yes, you can, and we've done it for eight years. People were like, you can't do shows where it's going to be punk rock and burlesque and rap, those crowds won't hang out together. Yes, they will. Don't listen to people when they tell you no. When venues are like, well, we don't book hip hop, unless it's like white people. Then we just did shows in our, our living room. We did shows in our houses, our apartments. And I'm gonna say this, if the law is unjust, you're supposed to break it. And everyone waiting for permits to throw parties, I'm not with that. I'm one of those people that like, they used to tell a slave they couldn't gather and sing songs and read together. And they're doing the same thing to us as young people when they tell us we need to have a $40,000 or $80,000 venue and $20,000 for your liquor license and yada, yada, to gather and share songs and drink together. It's bullshit. And it, it means someone's going to have to take the risk, but they throw the shows in their backyard, throw the shows in their basement, throw the shows in their living room. Make sure people are safe. Make sure that you have your exits. Make sure, you know, you understand the type of crowds you're bringing together and that people of all perspectives can feel welcome. But... I'm, I am from a time period to where you're supposed to. Sorry about that. Like, I'm from a time period where, like, you're supposed to throw illegal parties. You're supposed to cram 60 people into a four-bedroom apartment and have a wild show. You're supposed to make art that challenges the people in power, challenges the government, challenges the people that have all the means of production and aren't giving access to others. You're supposed to bring up the difficult discussions. You're supposed to challenge yourself as an artist to push yourself and to constantly be assessed purpose. And, and again, that existential crisis of who are we? Why are we here? What are we here to do? You know, how do we get here? Where are we going in the future? Um, but to don't, don't let the current constraints limit you. And, and when people tell you you can't do something, you're right. I can't grow wings out of my back and fly away. I'm never going to be a duck. But... Most of the things people tell you you can't do, they aren't being pragmatic like that. They're just limiting your imagination. And everything we see around us in the city of New York is the product of some other creative person. And we got to keep in mind that creativity, no matter how much it's dismissed, like, oh, you're an artist, that's dumb. Whatever, everything around us is a creative product. And, and, and even in politics, there are people who recognize the power of now, I get in front of a group of people, I can convince them to do stuff. The people that recognize the power of paperwork and bureaucracy, the people that recognize the power of media, the people that recognize all around us, 
how to manipulate the world into being what they want it to be. And so as artists and creatives, we have to be fortified and remember that we have a say in that. We have a role in that. We as just regular people also shape the world around us. And don't let people talk you out of how you want to shape the world. Yeah, I love that so much. And I feel like it's so true. I actively try to remind myself that everything that exists today was once just a story in someone's imagination. And yet here we are living it out. And we've got to keep dreaming and we've got to keep reimagining. And I think that's what art does. And that's the beauty of art. I mean, similar to philosophy, where the only purpose is loving wisdom or loving truth or understanding that my art is not here to solve a design problem. My art is not here for some pragmatic craftsperson's purpose. My art is there to exist solely as art. It's not to be exchanged for money. It's not a product. It's not a commodity. It's not kitsch. It's not some extension of a marketing plan for another future product. It is what it's supposed to be, and it exists in and of itself. It is inherently its own end and means. And, and for me, as a person that wants to own what I produce, it's mine. I make it, then I give it away and share it with everyone I possibly can. And, and it's unlimited. It's like love in that it's this constant wellspring that never runs dry. And I value that. Like I, I really uh, find solace and, and comfort in knowing that as an artist and as a creative, I have something to offer the world that isn't exploiting anybody. It's not... It doesn't require me to be someone's boss to share my artwork. It doesn't require me to be subservient to someone in order for me to share my artwork. It means us as humans just communicating and sharing with each other. Cheers to that. And thank you so much again, Chris. This has been really special, really wonderful to talk to you. Again, for our listeners, we've been chatting with Chris Carr. And you can find him online really easily on social media at BK Wildlife. Chris, any last words for listeners before we go? Anyone want to check me out? Find me on the internet. I'm easy to find. All right, y'all be safe. Peace and love. That wraps up this week's episode of From Starving to Savvy. Myself, along with the whole team at Last Draft, extend our most sincere gratitude to each of you for tuning in and giving your ears, your hearts, and your time to learning more about our guests and their unique stories and experiences. Once again, this podcast is brought to you by Last Draft, an ethical, engaging, and human story company with a mission to authentically amplify the stories of those they work with. The team at Last Draft thrives on real connections, empowering stories, and authentic voices. If you are an artist or entrepreneur looking to start telling your story, Last Draft offers support through evocative written content, exciting virtual events, personal email campaigns, and more. To get in touch with a team member at Last Draft, please visit www.lastdraft.ca. Again, we extend our deepest thanks to each of you for tuning in and hope you'll be back for future episodes.